I remember some years ago, my father told me about a customer with whom he was interacting, and they were uh, discussing a certain political leader who will remain anonymous, but they were, they were talking about this political leader, and my father told me that, that the man said, we're all sinners, but that man, the one they were talking about, he works at it. And in a sense, I think there's a, there's a healthy distinction that is being made there. And so on the one hand, this customer of my father understood that we are all sinners. That's certainly a true and biblical insight. And what is more, some people seem to increase their guilt by the intentionality, the willfulness, and the heinousness of their sins. And as we continue looking at the book of Job tonight, as we kind of consider thematically uh, a few things in this, uh, this dialogue section uh, from chapter 4 up through chapter 31, we're going to be considering this issue raised by Job's friends, namely charges of wickedness. Now, last week, we considered some of the sections where they spoke in broad proverbial tones. Basically, if you do evil, you will reap trouble. And then we considered how they misapplied that proverbial wisdom In Job's case, by reasoning backward, they reasoned that since Job was reaping trouble, therefore he must have sown wickedness. He must have acted wickedly in order to reap the trouble that he was having. Tonight, we consider the charges of wickedness that they bring against him. And as we'll see, they bring charges that are both general and applicable to to all men, namely, we're all sinners, therefore you're a sinner, therefore... Bad stuff is happening to you, and they also get specific, and they say, you work at it. You're wicked. This is how. These are specific instances. And so let's, let's look to, uh, to the book of Job again. Uh, as we're kind of approaching this thematically, we're going to be, be jumping around a lot in the book. But first, let's look to, uh, to Job chapter 4, and, and we'll see, starting here in Job 4, verses 12 through 21, a, a section in which Eliphaz basically lays it out that, that we're, we're all sinners, therefore you're not righteous, therefore don't be surprised. And we'll see this, we'll see this same kind of uh, idea repeated a few times. So let's look first uh, to Job 4, 12 through 21, the words of Eliphaz as he says, Now a word was brought to me stealthily, and my ear received a whisper of it. Amid disquieting thoughts from the visions of the night when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me, and trembling, and made all my bones shake. Then a spirit passed by my face. The hair of my flesh bristled up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. Can mankind be just before God? Can man be pure before his maker? He puts no trust in his servants, and against his angels he charges error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed before the moth. Between morning and evening they are broken in pieces. Unobserved they perish forever. Is not their tent cord plucked up within them? They die yet without wisdom. And now flip with me over to chapter four, or excuse me, chapter 15, and we'll look at a few verses there in chapter 15. Again, it's this Eliphaz speaking, and, uh, and some of the same, same general, general thought here, that mankind as a whole 
is impure and sinful. So Eliphaz says, this is chapter 15, verses 14 through 16, he says, What is man that he should be pure? Or he that is born of a woman, that he should be righteous? Behold, he puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less one who is detestable and corrupt, man who drinks iniquity like water. Fair enough. Let's look to chapter 25, a short chapter. These are the words of Bildad. You see some of the same, same kinds of things going on there from Bildad here in chapter 25. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered, Dominion and awe belong to him who establishes peace in his heights. Is there any number to his troops? And upon whom does his light not rise? And then here comes, here comes the charge, the broad charge against mankind in general. How then can a man be just with God? Or how can he be clean that is born of woman? If even the moon has no brightness and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less man, that maggot, and the son of man, that worm. Now if you read those passages all together, you can hear that, that common theme and that common refrain. If heavens are not pure, if angels are foolish in comparison to the all-wise God, then how much more is mankind Impure, foolish, and sinful. Man who drinks in water, excuse me, drinks in iniquity like water, as Eliphaz said in chapter 15, verse 16. And so again, as we, as we saw last week, there's a lot of what Job's friends said to him that were true. Again, that, that college friend of mine was right. He said, I thought his friends were giving him good advice. There's so much that he said, that they said collectively that was true. We are sinful. We do drink in iniquity like water. Do we not? And can we not harmonize a whole lot of what is said here, those words that we just read from chapter 4, chapter 15, chapter 25, with what we find elsewhere in Scripture, like the words of David, David's penitential psalm, Psalm 32, Psalm 51. Does not David merely personalize and put into the first person in Psalm 51, 5, that which Job's friends stated broadly here? David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. His friends say, How can one that is born of a woman be pure? And David raises his hand and says, Yeah, that's me. That's me. I'm wicked like that. Can we not read these statements of Job's friends and agree with much, if not all, of what we've read here in light of Paul's statements about human sinfulness, places like Romans 3, Ephesians 2, Titus 3? We can Romans 3, Paul says, there's no one who does good, not one. Ephesians 2, we are by nature children of wrath. Titus 3, we also were once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. In short, Job's friends were right about an awful lot. But similar to what we saw last week, though they said much that was good and true, again, they were taking the truth, and misapplying it. And so, in this case, they were taking truths about human sinfulness and were implying that Job's trouble stemmed from his sinfulness. Their reasoning was something along these lines. All mankind is sinful. Therefore, you are sinful. Sin brings suffering. Therefore, you are suffering because of your sin. Now, human sinfulness certainly was and is true. Mankind 
Men and women alike are sinners. Job certainly was a sinner. Sin certainly does bring suffering. All of these are facts. As uh, one of my uh, former uh, bosses or supervisors used to say, or at least he said it once, a fact is a fact. You can't deny a fact, right? Facts are facts, fair enough. But what is also a fact is that not every disaster that is brought upon us is the result of some sin which we ourselves have committed. The problem with Job's friends in this case was not that they had the facts wrong. The problem lay in their misapplication of the truths that they knew and that were clear to them. They knew a lot of truth. They were just misapplying the truth to the particular case of Job. And we would do well to, to be mindful of this. We spoke last week about the, the weaponization of proverbial wisdom. And proverbial wisdom is not the only thing that can be weaponized in a case like Job's. James Durham uh, described the situation this way, commenting on chapter 4. He said, The most clear truth, though it were revealed by a vision from God, may be misunderstood and twisted to a wrong end when a man who is uh, prejudiced acts. So he says, in light of this, use truths soberly, drink them in sincerely. He says, be sober in searching for light, and be wary of how you apply the mind of God in anything made known, and that you draw not conclusions from it that God never intended, as is too often found in men that God gives gifts to in any measure. And the point is, is that what we don't want to do is to take the truth of God and try to draw things out from them that God never put in those truths which he has communicated. Durham, speaking of Bildad, he says, Bildad speaks well of God's majesty and absolute sovereignty. And it is a wonder to see such tender expressions of God going along with gross mistakes of Job's way. But Job's response insinuates that he studied more words than how to rightly apply them. Many from their parts and abilities speak great words of God in his way, yet err in their application, which should make folks more wary, tender and humble, and study not so much words as to be right in the matter itself. For Job passes by words and expressions and examines the matter and drift of them. And so should we. In other words, we have to penetrate below the surface. We need not only to know the, the truth of God's revelation, we have to be careful and thoughtful as to how we apply the truth. Now, I've returned to this verse multiple times in recent weeks, but the words of Jesus in John seven twenty four are certainly applicable here. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. And in the context there in John chapter 7... The context in which Jesus spoke those words is, I think, particularly relevant for us as we think about the issue that was going on here in Job. Because in John 7, Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees and was specifically confronting them over their misapplication of the fourth commandment. They had judged that Jesus was violating the fourth commandment related to the Sabbath because he healed on the Sabbath. And this was their logic. The fourth commandment forbids working on the Sabbath. Healing is work. Jesus healed, therefore Jesus violated the fourth commandment. And Jesus says, in essence, wait a minute, you need to think about this a little bit more. You all permit 
circumcision to be done on the Sabbath so that the law of circumcision may be kept. So then why are you angry with me? Because I I heal somebody. You guys will circumcise somebody. Why are you angry with me? Because I heal someone to make an entire man well on the Sabbath. In other words, Jesus says you need to, to go back and think through your application of the fourth commandment a little bit more. They needed to apply consistent logic and reasoning in their assessment of Jesus. I remember once hearing a professor say, logic, reason, the weapons of a philosopher. Indeed, how we need them and how we need to use them rightly. How desperately we need to stop judging according to mere appearance and to judge with righteous judgment. This means, again, that we need to think. We need to penetrate beneath the surface of appearance. We need to know the scripture as a whole and we need to employ good principles of interpretation, good hermeneutics, and also good application of the truth. So, in short, we have to be careful. We have to think. We can't just seize upon a first sight reading of a biblical text and then seek from that first sight reading to overthrow what Scripture might elsewhere clearly teach or to seize upon that first sight reading and then apply it in a very unhelpful way to a particular individual case. And so we have to be careful. We have to read scripture in context. We have to understand its genre and understand and approach each particular text of scripture with minds that are steeped in and shaped by the whole of scripture. So we approach the parts of scripture with the knowledge of the whole and we approach the whole of scripture with knowledge of the individual parts. We have to be then thoughtful in our application of biblical and theological truths to specific individuals in particular cases because that was where Job's friends went wrong. They, they knew theological truth, but they misapplied it. And this has large implications, especially for those who preach and teach in the church, but it also has implications for, for all of us, for parents who are in the home teaching their children, for every Christian as we interact with each other and seek to encourage or exhort or admonish This has implications for individual Christians as we seek to form judgments on what is happening in the world, as we seek to to be Bereans, to go back to the scriptures and search them, to evaluate the things that we're being taught, either things that we're being taught in church or the things that we're being taught by the world. We always have to go back to scripture. Are certain things good or bad? Are certain things matters on which Christians may in good conscience disagree? We need to know the scriptures, rightly interpreted and rightly applied, in order to know the difference. Now in these places, Job's friends speak of human sinfulness generally. And they were speaking with a point, right? They weren't just saying, well, yeah, we're we're all sinful. They were essentially saying, yeah, yeah, we're all sinful, and so are you. And this is why these things are happening. But that was not all they did. As we said, they made specific accusations against Job. And let's look then to, uh, to some of those texts in which Job's friends made specific accusations against him. Let's look at, uh, let's look at chapter 11, the uh, words of Zophar there in chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. Then Zophar, the Namathite, answered, Shall a multitude of words go unanswered, and a talkative man be acquitted? Shall your boasts silence men? And shall you scoff and none rebuke you? For you have said, My teaching is pure, and I am innocent in your eyes. 
but would that God might speak and open his lips against you and show you the secrets of wisdom. For sound wisdom has two sides. Know then that God forgets a part of your iniquity. And so, Zophar, particularly there to verse 6, Zophar is saying, is saying, yeah, you're suffering for your sin. God has passed over a bunch of your sin. If you were suffering for all of your sin, it would be much worse. Again, to borrow the words of James Durham, he said, and this is true. For there is more sin in the holiest man than he sees. And God exacts less of us than our iniquities deserve. But yet for all that, it does not follow that Job's sins were the controversy which God was pursuing him or that he was the greater sinner because he was so heavily afflicted. Again, Zophar has some wisdom there. He's saying some things right, that God does not treat us as our sins deserve. He uh, forgets part of our iniquity, as it were. But still, it's a non sequitur, right? It doesn't follow that that's why Job was suffering. Let's, let's flip over and look, uh, look to chapter 15 again, the words of Eliphaz. Um, let's look at verses uh, 2 through 13. He says, Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill himself with the east wind? Should he argue with useless talk or with words which are not profitable? Indeed, you do away with reverence and hinder meditation before God. For your guilt teaches your mouth and you choose the language of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you and not I. And your own lips testify against you. Were you the first man to be born? Or were you brought forth before the hills? Do you hear the secret counsel of God and limit wisdom to yourself? Do you know, excuse me, what do you know that we do not know? And what do you understand that we do not? Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us, older than your father. Are the consolations of God too small for you? Even the words spoken gently with you. Why does your heart carry you away? And why do your eyes flash that you should turn your spirit against God and allow such words to go out of your mouth? And the charges get even more specific in chapter 22. Again, chapter 22 is, is Eliphaz, and he gets, he gets more specific about the, the wickedness of Job. And so let's look through uh, to verses 4 through 17, chapter 22. He says, Is it because of your reverence that he reproves you, that he enters into judgment against you? Is not your wickedness great and your iniquities without end? And here come the charges specifically. For you have taken pledges of your brothers without cause, and stripped men naked. To the weary you have given no water to drink. And from the hungry you have withheld bread. But the earth belongs to the mighty man, and the honorable man dwells in it. You have sent widows away empty, and the strength of the orphans has been crushed. Therefore, snares surround you, and sudden dread terrifies you, or darkness, so that you cannot see, and an abundance of water covers you. Is not God in the height of heaven? Look also at the distant stars, how high they are. You say, what does God know? Can he judge through thick darkness? Clouds are a hiding place for him, so that he cannot see, and he walks on the vault of heaven. Will you keep to the ancient path which wicked men have trod, who were snatched away before their time, whose foundations were washed away by a river? They said to God, Depart from us, and what can the Almighty do to them? Now in 
Chapter 22, in those verses that we've just read, Eliphaz is, is accusing Job of, of mistreating the needy and of acting as if God can't see him behaving wickedly. As Eliphaz paints it, the position of Job is essentially like the wicked man described in Psalm 10, verse 11, where the psalmist says, He says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. And that's, that's essentially what Eliphaz is saying to Job. He's saying, you act as if God can't see you. You're behaving as if you think that God does not know what you're doing. Such are the charges that are brought against Job by his friend. They argued that all men are sinners, and therefore you are, and then they proceeded to charge him with specific wrongs to show him how he was working at it. Right? He wasn't just a general sinner. He was actually aggravating his wickedness. And now how did, how did Job handle these charges that his friends kept pushing against him? Certainly Job had a lot to say in response to his friends, but let's, let's look at a, a few places. Um, Job chapter 6, we won't, we won't read uh, the chapter uh, in its entirety there, but in Job chapter 6, we, we could summarize what Job had to say by essentially saying that, that God had attacked him. And so if you look at verse 4, um, that kind of gives us a, a brief window into what Job is thinking. He says, For the arrows of the Almighty are within me. Their poison my spirit drinks. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. And so he thinks that God has, has attacked him, but nevertheless he says that he has held on to God. And, and so if you... Uh, if you look up, uh, look up and start in verse 8, he says, Oh, that my request might come to pass, and that God would grant my longing. Would that God were willing to crush me, that he would loose his hand and cut me off. But it is still my consolation, and I rejoice in unsparing pain, that I have not denied the words of the Holy One. And so he said that, you know, God has treated me this way, but I've not denied God's words. I've, I've still held on to God. And he goes on, to explain that his friends have dealt unkindly with him. And uh, just look at at chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. He says, For the despairing man there should be kindness from his friend, so that he does not forsake the fear of the Almighty. My brothers have acted uh, acted deceitfully like a weighty, like torrents of the weighties which vanish. And essentially, the, uh, what, he's, what he's talking about there is, is basically a stream. And you go, you go to a stream and you, you expect to get water, but the water's not there. There's no, no refreshment to come to you from this, from this stream. The, it's kind of, as, as I understand it at least, this is uh, like a, a mountain stream that during a, during a torrent, you know, you get, get a lot of water, but then it dries up and there's nothing there. And Job's friends uh, weren't giving him anything. It was as if he went to a stream expecting to get a cool drink, and they were giving him nothing. He wants his friends to deal kindly and justly with him, and it was not happening. In, uh, if you look at 12 and 13, Job responds to, uh, to charges of wickedness there as well. And so let's, uh, let's look at how he shoots back to his friends in 12 verses 2 through 5. You can hear the, the sarcasm in his voice. He says, truly you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. But I have intelligence as well as you. I am not inferior to you. And who does not know such things as these? I am a joke to my friends. The one who called on God and he answered him. The just and the blameless man is a joke. He who is at ease 
holds calamity in contempt as prepared for those whose feet slip. And you see him uh, shooting back again in 13, 2 through 5. He says, What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you, but I would speak to the Almighty and desire to argue with God. But you smear me with lies. You are all worthless physicians. Oh, that you would be completely silent and that it would become your wisdom. You can, you can tell how Job is Job's fed up with, with what he's been hearing from them. He says, you guys are, you guys are worthless. You're not, not helping me out here at all. In uh, 12 verses uh, 14 through 25, we, we won't uh, read that for the sake of time, but he makes some observations in regard to the sovereignty of God and his response to, to his friends. He observes that God is the one who exalts. God is the one who humbles. God does as, his, as he pleases, and the exaltation which God bestows is no necessary sign of righteousness. And the humbling which God inflicts on certain individuals is no necessary sign of the wickedness of the one on whom that punishment is inflicted. In chapter 13, verses 13 through 19, Job declares that that he will keep on trusting God and he trusts that he will be vindicated. And the vindication that Job is is looking for and expecting is not a vindication that that he is sinless, but rather a vindication that he's faithful, that he's not a hypocrite, that he was indeed, as the Lord had said in the the opening chapters, that he was was upright, that he feared God, that he turned away from evil. Let's look at, at 13, verses 13 through 19. He says, Be silent before me, so that I may speak. Then let come on me what may. Why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hands? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. This also will be my salvation. For a godless man may not come before his presence. Listen carefully to my speech and let my declaration fill your ears. Behold now, I have prepared my case. I know that I will be vindicated. Who will contend with me? For then I would be silent and die. Again, Job is is holding tight to the Lord, and he recognizes that that at the end it will it will be made clear that that he's been a righteous and faithful man, not that he's been a sinless man, but that there is no particular sin for which he is being punished. In another one of Job's responses, uh, chapter sixteen, verses six through twenty-two. Again, we won't uh, we won't read that entire response, but he pours out his his heart about how God has, has exhausted him and, and shriveled him up. Again, it's, it's this idea kind of under another metaphor. Earlier he used the idea of God's arrows coming into him. And here in, in chapter 16 he uses this idea of, uh, of the Lord having exhausted him and, and shriveled him up, dried him out. In chapter 23, Job appeals to the Lord. He wants to bring his case before the Lord and hear what the Lord would, would say to him. Let's, let's read his words uh, there in, in chapter 23, verses 10 through 14. 23, 10 through 14. He says, But he, God, knows the way I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot has held fast to his path. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. But he is unique, and who can turn him? 
and what his soul desires, that he does. For he performs what is appointed for me, and many such decrees are with him. And he says much the same in chapter 27, verses 1 through 6. Let's look there. Then Job continued his discourse and said, As God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty who has embittered my soul, for as long as my life is in me and the breath of God is in my nostrils, my lips certainly will not speak unjustly, nor will my tongue mutter deceit. Far be it from me that I should declare you right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach any of my days. And Job, again, recognizes that he's walked faithfully. And he's not going to give in to to the, the pushing of his friends who say, You really are wicked. Now just tell us, where is the wickedness? Job says... I'm not going to do that. I am not going to put my integrity away from me. And then in in chapter 31, he reaches the height of his defense, you might say, and pushes back against the specific accusations of wickedness that they were bringing before him. And he declares how he has walked uprightly. Yes, he is a sinner, but he's not that kind of a sinner. And he's not suffering directly because of his sins. And, uh, in, and so in, in chapter 31, again, we're not going to read the entire text, but, but I would direct your attention to, uh, to a few portions of the text. One thing uh, that Job points out is his uh, integrity in, in sexual matters. And so look at uh, 31 verse 1. He says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? And look at verses 9 through 12. He says, if my heart has been enticed by a woman or I have lurked at my neighbor's doorway, may my wife grind for another and let others kneel down over her, for that would be a lustful crime. Moreover, it would be an iniquity punishable by the judges, for it would be fire that consumes to Abaddon and would uproot all my increase. And then uh, if you look on down to verses 13 through 15, you see his concern for, for his slaves. He says, If I have despised the claim of my male or female slaves when they filed a complaint against me, what then could I do when God arises? And when he calls me to account, what will I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make him and the same one fashion us in the womb? Job recognizes that God made us both, and I have to deal fairly with those who are subordinate to me. And you see his concern for the poor in verses 16 through 23. He says, if I have kept the poor from their desire, remember that was one of the charges against him, was that he was mistreating the poor. He says, if I have kept the poor from their desire, or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or have eaten my morsel alone, and the orphan has not shared it, but for my youth... He grew up with me as with a father, and from infancy I guided her. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, or that the needy had no covering, if his loins have not thanked me, and if he has not been warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I have lifted up my hand against the orphan because I saw that I had support in the gate, let my shoulder fall from my socket and my arm be broken off at the elbow, for calamity from God is a terror to me. And because of his majesty, I can do nothing. In other words, Job, Job says, listen, 
I have taken care of the poor, and if I have not let my arm fall off right now. Job says, you guys have accused me of these things. It's false. This is not, this is not the way I operate. As you, as you look on down through the chapter, uh, verses 24 through 28, to summarize, he, he says that he, he's putting, putting no confidence in riches, and he's not turning aside to idolatry. Verses 29 through 32, he says that he has no malice toward his enemies, and he has concern for strangers. And then look at verse 33. He says, Have I covered my transgressions like Adam by hiding my iniquity in my bosom? And keep on reading. Because I feared the great multitude and the contempt of families terrified me and kept uh, silent and did not go out of doors. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Behold, here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me and the indictment which my adversary has written. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it to myself like a crown. I would declare to him the number of my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. Again, Job is not, is not backing away from, from the Lord. He wants to appear before the Lord and present his case before him. So Job pushes back very strongly on these accusations of wickedness that have been brought to him. Now, in all of this, all that we've seen tonight, we see that we need to be careful and stop from making accusations concerning which we are not well informed. In other words, we need to avoid painting with too broad a brush. That was, that was what these friends were doing. They were, they were painting with a very, very broad brush. And just to apply that lesson to our interpretation of the, the text of Job, I think we would do well to remember that these men, of whom we have justly been critical tonight, Job's friends, we need to remember that they actually were his friends. Now, they weren't being helpful here, but they were his friends. They had many good things to say, even though they were wrong in their counsel and they incurred the judgment of the Lord. Nevertheless, it does not follow that these were absolute evil men. Some of the commentators point out that these men are actually good men. They're very wrong here in their interpretation and application uh, of truth to Job's situations, but it does not follow that they were therefore purely evil and absolutely good for nothing. Just like we shouldn't condemn Job's wife as a completely evil and godless woman, judging her by the, that moment at the lowest ebb of her life, so also we shouldn't judge these men as completely godless simply because they were wrong in respect here of Job. And coupled with this lesson about not painting with, with too broad a brush is a second lesson, which is a call to be a true and helpful friend to people who are in circumstances like this. And so Job says in, in chapter 6, verse 14, For the despairing man there should be kindness from his friend, so that he does not forsake the fear of the Almighty. And the ESV translates it this way, He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. And Job is, Job is kind of pointing, as he's saying this, pointing to Eliphaz. And Job was in a situation where he was depending on these friends of his for kindness. He's just been beat up in the worst way we can imagine. Children are dead, possessions are gone, he's sick. 
He wants kindness from his friends. And he's sorely disappointed in the counsel that he gets from his friends, as the, the subsequent verses of chapter 6 make clear. Again, he, he comes to his friends wanting them to be like a, a refreshing, cool stream, but they're like, like one of the weighties that had dried up, and there was nothing to be found there. And so one of the lessons that we ought to learn here as we consider the failure of Job's friends when they accuse him of wickedness, the lesson to be learned is not that we should never confront people at all with sin. That's not the lesson. Sometimes we have to do that. But what we need to learn is that we must interact with the weak and the broken in a thoughtful and gentle way. We must show them kindness, lest we ourselves forsake the fear of the Almighty. If we're not showing kindness to those who are in need, we're turning away from the fear of God. Part of faithfully reverencing God means loving our friends and loving those with whom we have occasion to interact and showing them kindness. Unless it was that Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 and 15, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone, see that no one repays another evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Now notice what Paul said there. He said, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. In order to obey that command, what do we have to do? We have to be able to distinguish between the cases that differ. That means we have to be able to tell who's, who's being unruly. They need admonition. Who's faint-hearted? They need encouragement. They need to be strengthened, encouraged. Who's weak? They need our help. So... Knowing these things requires relationship, and again, it requires penetrating below the surface. We don't want to just simply look at, at actions. We have to look at kind of what's, what's going on under the actions, right? And we don't want to be just shooting from the hip, uninformed as to people's true conditions. That's, that's what was going on here with, with Job's friends. They knew a lot of truth, and bang, they were letting him have it. They should have dug a little bit deeper, looked at the situation more fully and more faithfully and applied some nuance to the truth and the facts that they knew as they were applying them to Job. And obviously our ultimate model for how to do this kind of thing is our Lord Jesus himself. Jesus dealt with the unruly. Jesus dealt with the faint-hearted. Jesus dealt with the weak. And we can see his various ways of dealing with different individuals according to their different statuses in Scripture. Jesus admonished Jesus encouraged, Jesus helped. He himself has been gracious and kind to us. And our calling then is to help others to find the same grace that we have found, whether it be for the first time to give them a first taste of grace or whether it be to give a fresh taste of grace for those who have long and often drank from the rivers of grace and need yet another drink. That was Job. He had drank from the grace of God many, many times and he desperately needed a drink and some encouragement and refreshment. His friends were not there for that. And so let's show kindness to those who are in despair so that we ourselves do not forsake the fear of God. Let's fear God by showing kindness to those who are in need. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for uh, this book of, of Job. And Lord, we thank you for...
teaching us in so many different ways uh, by your word. So many different types of literature in the scripture. Here we have one that challenges us and makes us think. Lord, we pray that you would help us to think rightly and to faithfully apply it. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to show kindness to others. Help us to know when to admonish, when to help, when to encourage. Lord, we know that we are often so ignorant of so many things. So often we are too foolish and paint with too broad a brush. Lord, we ask that you'd help us. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be kind. Help us to admonish and even rebuke when necessary. Lord, we ask that your spirit would give us great wisdom and great faithfulness to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.